2: Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: Good evening, children of the night. Welcome, welcome to the nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome, alas, to the pest house. Come in, come in. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and please keep your distance from me. Last week's imprecations still apply. I yet snuffle, I still snarf, so keep your distance, please. Tonight, tonight is a big show. So, I ask you to snuggle in tonight. We've decanted a fine claret, and the snifters are warming for the brandy. We've got two after-dinner tales, both featuring the same character, but by different authors. More on that anon. First, a little business. A plea for you to spread the word about the show and stop by the site, tales TalesToTerrify.com. And engage your fellows in conversation. Become a Facebook friend of the show and commune with us there. Share Eves, the co-editor and organizer supreme of spreadsheets and narrations and such, has a fervent wish. As fervent wishes go, it is a simple one. May the show top 500 Facebook friends before Christmas— Yes, modest fervor, perhaps, and as wishes go, not a bad one, so stop by and like us on Facebook. We'll keep you up to date on what's coming up, what's happening in and around the nook, and now and again, we'll amuse and hopefully disturb you with whatever creepy images we can find to illustrate the state of story that is and story to come. Okay? Okay? Before we leap into this week's enchantments, I have three more words for you. You know what they are. Yes, let us speak them softly together in chorus. By the book. You know how. Click on the button that says, By the book. Please do it when you get home tonight. Christmas is coming. Our first anniversary will soon engulf us and pass us by, so send us off into the new year with coffers jangling. By, the book. You could also make a contribution. Now, during his all-too-brief writing career, William Hope Hodgson created an occult sleuth by the name of Thomas Carnacki. We've read Hodgson here before, significantly in show number 29, I believe it is. I read his A Voice in the Night to you. If you want to know more about Hodgson, go to the archive and have a listen there. But between 1910 and 1912, Hodgson wrote six tales featuring Karnaki. They were published in the magazine The Idler, which ran from 1892 to 1911 and the new magazine in 1913 the karnaki stories were collected in book form and were reissued in a cheap edition in 1920 said cheap edition now can sometimes be found on ebay for upwards of $2500 in nineteen forty seven August Derlith chose to reprint the stories featuring the supernatural detective under his under derlith's Mycroft and Moran imprint and If you have to ask about Mycroft and Moran, I recommend you go to your homes to find out in corresponding with Hodgson's widowed Hodgson by the way, was killed at the Battle of the Somme during World War One. Uh, two additional stories featuring this ghost finder Karnaki turned up. One of which, the Hog, in which our hero faces a giant porcine spirit, which tries to enter the living world and manifests itself as a series of horrifying nightmares. Well, that is sometimes figured to be the best of the series, and that someday we may do the Hog here in the Nook, as a tale cut into two parts. At 17,000 words, it would make for a long evening indeed. Inevitably, as with Sherlock Holmes and other significant literary characters, other authors began to write pastiches to keep Carnacki alive, and in 2002, Ashtree Press brought out number 472 Cheney Walk. That's titled after the address of the now deathless detective. The print run of 472 Shamy Walk was limited to 500 copies, unfortunately. The 12 stories in it are written by A.F. Kidd and Rick Bennett. Some were written independently, others in collaboration, and are based on various cases that Carnacki alludes to in the original stories but never relates. A few of these untold stories had earlier appeared in a booklet of the same name. During their original run, the magazine that published the Carnacki Tales boasted, "'Complaints continue to reach us from all parts of the country "'to the effect that Mr. William Hope Hodgson's Carnacki stories "'are producing a widespread epidemic of nervous prostration. "'So far from being able to reassure or calm our nervous readers, "'we are compelled to warn them that "'the story which we publish this month is worse than ever.'" Our advertising manager had to go to bed for two days after reading the advance sheets. A proofreader has sent in his resignation, and, worst of all, our smartest office boy. Well, this is no place to bewail or seek sympathy. Yet another of those stories will appear in April. Well, one of Mr. Hodgson's tales will appear here in the Nook tonight. Tonight's first Carnacki Tale, The Horse of the Invisible, was published in The Idler in April of 1910. And, well, I could go on, but perversely, I cannot. So,
1: without further fuss or elaboration, here is The Horse of the Invisible by William Hope Hodgson when I reached 427 Cheney Walk, Chelsea, I found Carnacki sitting alone. As I came into the room, he rose with a perceptibly stiff movement and extended his left hand. His face seemed to be badly scarred and bruised, and his right hand was bandaged. He shook hands and offered me his paper, which I refused. Then he passed me a handful of photographs and returned to his reading. Now, that is just Carnacki. Not a word had come from him, and not a question from me. He would tell us all about it later. I spent about half an hour looking at the photographs, which were chiefly snaps, some by flashlight, of an extraordinarily pretty girl, though in some of the photographs it was wonderful that her prettiness was so evident, for so frightened and startled was her expression that it was difficult not to believe that she had been photographed in the presence of some imminent and overwhelming danger. The bulk of the photographs were of interiors of different rooms and passages, and in every one the girl might be seen, either full length in the distance or closer, with perhaps only a hand or arm or portion of the head or dress included in the photograph. All of these had evidently been taken with some definite aim that did not have for its first purpose the picturing of the girl, but obviously of her surroundings and they made me very curious, as you can imagine. Near the bottom of the pile, however, I came upon something definitely extraordinary. It was a photograph of the girl standing abrupt and clear in the great blaze of a flashlight, as was plain to be seen. Her face was turned a little upward, as if she had been frightened suddenly by some noise. Directly above her, as though half-formed and coming down out of the shadows, was the shape of a single enormous hoof. I examined this photograph for a long time, without understanding it more than that it had probably to do with some queer case in which Carnacki was interested. When Jessop, Arkwright, and Taylor came in, Carnacki quietly held out his hand for the photographs, which I returned in the same spirit, and afterwards we all went in to dinner. When we had spent a quiet but profitable hour at the table, we pulled our chairs round and made ourselves snug, and Carnacki began. "'I've been north,' he said, speaking slowly and painfully between puffs at his pipe, "'up to Hisgins of East Lancashire. "'It has been a pretty strange business all around, as I fancy you chaps will think when I have finished. I knew before I went something about the horse story, as I have heard it called but I never thought of it as coming my way, somehow. Also, I know now that I never considered it seriously, in spite of my rule always to keep an open mind. Funny creatures, we humans. Well, I got a wire, asking for an appointment, which, of course, told me that there was some trouble. On the date I fixed, old Captain Hisgins himself came up to see me. He told me a great many new details about the horse story, though naturally I had always known the main points, and understood that if the first child were a girl, that girl would be haunted by the horse during her courtship. It is, as you can see, an extraordinary story, and though I have always known about it, I have never thought it to be anything more than old-time legend, as I have already hinted. You see... For seven generations the Hisgins family have had men-children for their first-born, and even the Hisgins themselves have long considered the tale to be little more than a myth. To come to the present, the eldest child of the reigning family is a girl, and she has been often teased and warned in jest by her friends and relations that she is the first girl to be the eldest for seven generations, and that she would have to keep her men-friends at arm's length, or go into a nunnery, if she hoped to escape the haunting. And this, I think, shows us how thoroughly the tale had grown to be considered as nothing worthy of the least serious thought. Don't you think so? Two months ago Miss Hisgins became engaged to Beaumont, a young naval officer, and on the evening of the very day of the engagement, before it was even formally announced, a most extraordinary thing happened which resulted in Captain Hisgins making the appointments and my ultimately going down to their place to look into the thing. From the old family records and papers that were trusted to me, I found that there could be no possible doubt that prior to something like a hundred fifty years ago there were some very extraordinary and disagreeable coincidences, to put the thing in the least emotional way. In the whole of the two centuries prior to that date, there were five first-born girls, out of a total of seven generations of the family. Each of these girls grew up to maidenhood, and each became engaged, and each one died during the period of engagement. Two by suicide, one by falling from a window, one from a broken heart, presumably heart failure, owing to sudden shock through fright. The fifth girl was killed one evening in the park round the house but just how, there seemed to be no exact knowledge, only that there was an impression that she had been kicked by a horse. She was dead when found. Now, you see, all of these deaths might be attributed, in a way, even the suicides, to natural causes, I mean as distinct from supernatural. You see— Yet, in every case, the maidens had undoubtedly suffered some extraordinary and terrifying experiences during their various courtships, for in all of the records there was mention either of the neighing of an unseen horse, or of the sounds of an invisible horse galloping, as well as many other peculiar and quite inexplicable manifestations. You begin to understand now, I think, just how extraordinary a business it was that I was asked to look into.' I gathered from the records that the haunting of the girls was so constant and horrible that two of the girls' lovers fairly ran away from their lady-loves, and I think it was this, more than anything else, that made me feel that there had been something more in it than a mere succession of uncomfortable coincidences. I got hold of these facts before I had been many hours in the house. "'and after this I went pretty carefully into the details of the things "'that happened on the night of Miss Hiskin's engagement to Beaumont. "'It seems that, as the two of them were going through the big lower corridor, "'just after dusk and before the lamps had been lighted, "'there had been a sudden, horrible neighing in the corridor, close to them. "'Immediately afterward, Beaumont received a tremendous blow or kick "'which broke his right forearm. Then the rest of the family came running to know what was wrong, and the servants. Lights were brought, and the corridor and afterwards the whole house searched. But nothing unusual was found. You can imagine the excitement in the house, and the half-incredulous, half-believing talk about the old legend. Later on, in the middle of the night, the old captain was awakened by the sound of a great horse galloping round and round the house. "'Several times after this, both Beaumont and the girl said that they had heard the sounds of hoofs near to them after dusk in several of the rooms and corridors. Three nights later, Beaumont was awakened by a strange neighing in the night-time, seeming to come from the direction of his sweetheart's bedroom. "'He ran hurriedly for her father, and the two of them raced to her room. "'They found her awake and ill with sheer terror.' "'having been awakened by the neighing, seemingly close to her bed. "'The night before I arrived there had been a fresh happening, "'and they were all in a frightfully nervy state, as you can imagine. "'I spent most of the first day, as I have hinted, in getting hold of details, "'but after dinner I slacked off and played billiards all the evening "'with Beaumont and Miss Hisgins. "'We stopped about ten o'clock and had coffee.' And I got Beaumont to give me full particulars "'about the thing that happened the night before. "'He and Miss Hisgins had been sitting quietly "'in her aunt's boudoir, whilst the old lady chaperoned them, behind a book. "'It was growing dusk, "'and the lamp was at her end of the table. "'The rest of the house was not yet lit, "'as the evening had come earlier than usual. "'Well, it seems that the door into the hall was open, "'and suddenly the girl said, "'Shh! What's that?' They both listened, and then Beaumont heard it, the sound of a horse outside the front door. "'Your father?' he suggested, but she reminded him that her father was not riding. Of course they were both ready to feel queer, as you can suppose, but Beaumont made an effort to shake this off, and went into the hall to see whether anyone was at the entrance.' It was pretty dark in the hall, and he could see the glass panels of the inner draught door clear-cut in the darkness of the hall. He walked over to the glass and looked through into the drive beyond, but there was nothing in sight. He felt nervous and puzzled, and opened the inner door and went out to the carriage circle. Almost directly afterward, the great hall door swung to with a crash behind him. He told me that he had a sudden awful feeling of having been trapped in some way. That is how he put it. He whirled round and gripped the door-handle, but something seemed to be holding it with a vast grip on the other side. Then, before it could be fixed in his mind that this was so, he was able to turn the handle and open the door. He paused a moment in the doorway and peered into the hall for he had hardly steadied his mind sufficiently to know whether he was really frightened or not. Then he heard his sweetheart blow him a kiss out of the greyness of the big unlit hall, and he knew that she had followed him from the boudoir. He blew her a kiss back and stepped inside the doorway, meaning to go to her, and then, suddenly, in a flash of sickening knowledge, he knew that it was not his sweetheart who had blown him that kiss. He knew that something was trying to tempt him alone into the darkness, and that the girl had never left the boudoir. He jumped back, and in the same instant of time he heard the kiss again, nearer to him. He called out at the top of his voice, Mary, stay in the boudoir, don't move out of the boudoir until I come to you. He heard her call something in reply from the boudoir. And then he had struck a clump of a dozen or so matches, and was holding them above his head, looking around the hall. There was no one in it, but even as the matches burned out, there came the sounds of a great horse galloping down the empty drive. Now, you see, both he and the girl had heard the sounds of the horse galloping, but when I questioned more closely, I found that the aunt had heard nothing though it is true she is a bit deaf, and she was further back in the room. Of course, both he and Miss Hiskins had been in an extremely nervous state and ready to hear anything. The door might have been slammed by a sudden puff of wind, owing to some inner door being opened, and, as for the grip on the handle, that might have been nothing more than the sneck catching. With regard to the kisses and the sounds of the horse galloping, "'I pointed out that these might have seemed ordinary enough sounds if they had been only cool enough to reason. As I told him, and as he knew, the sounds of a horse galloping carry a long way on the wind, so that what he had heard might have been nothing more than a horse being ridden some distance away. And as for the kiss, plenty of quiet noises, the rustle of a paper or a leaf have a somewhat similar sound, especially if one is in an overstrung condition and imagining things. I was preaching this little sermon on common sense versus hysteria as we put out the lights and left the billiard-room, but neither Beaumont nor Miss Hisgins would agree that there had been any fancy on their part. We had come out of the billiard-room by this and were going along the passage and I was still doing my best to make both of them see the ordinary, commonplace possibilities of the happening, when what killed my pig, as the saying goes, was the sound of a hoof in the dark billiard-room we had just left. I felt the creep come on me in a flash, up my spine and over the back of my head. Miss Hisgins whooped like a child with whooping cough, and ran up the passage, giving little gasping screams. "'Beaumont, however, ripped round on his heels and jumped back a couple of yards. "'I gave back, too, a bit, as you can understand.' "'There it is,' he said in a low, breathless voice. "'Perhaps you'll believe now.' "'There's certainly something,' I whispered back, "'and never taking my gaze off the closed door of the billiard-room. "'Hush!' he muttered. "'There it is again.' There was a sound like a great horse pacing round and round the billiard-room, with slow, deliberate steps. A horrible, cold fright took me, so that it seemed impossible to take a full breath. You know the feeling. And then I know we must have walked backwards, for we found ourselves suddenly at the opening of the long passage. We stopped there and listened. The sounds went on steadily with a horrible sort of deliberateness. "'as if the brute were taking a sort of malicious gusto "'in walking about all over the room in which we had just been. "'Do you understand just what I mean?' "'Then there was a pause, and a long time of absolute quiet, "'except for an excited whispering from some of the people down in the big hall. "'The sound came plainly up the wide stairway. "'I fancy they were gathered round Miss Hisgins "'with some notion of protecting her. I should think Beaumont and I stood there at the end of the passage for about five minutes, listening for any noise in the billiard-room. Then I realized what a horrible funk I was in, and I said to him, I'm going to see what's there. So am I, he answered. He was pretty white, but he had heaps of pluck. I told him to wait one instant, and I made a dash into my bedroom and got my camera and flashlight. I slipped my revolver into my right-hand pocket and a knuckle-duster over my left fist, where it was ready and yet would not stop me from being able to work my flashlight. Then I ran back to Beaumont. He held out his right hand to show me he had his pistol, and I nodded, but whispered to him not to be too quick to shoot, as there might be some silly practical joking at work after all. He had got a lamp from the bracket in the upper hall, which he was holding in the crook of his damaged arm, so that we had a good light. Then we went down the passage, towards the billiard-room, and you can imagine that we were a pretty nervous couple. All this time there had not been a sound, but abruptly, when we were within perhaps a couple of yards of the door, we heard the sudden clumping of a hoof on the solid parquet floor of the billiard-room. In the instant afterward, it seemed to me that the whole place shook beneath the ponderous hooffalls of some huge thing coming towards the door. Both Beaumont and I gave back a pace or two, and then realized and hung on to our courage, as you might say, and waited. The great tread came right up to the door and then stopped, and there was an instant of absolute silence, except that— So far as I was concerned, the pulse in my throat and temples almost deafened me. I dare say we waited quite half a minute, and then came the further restless clumping of a great hoof. Immediately afterward the sounds came right on, as if some invisible thing passed through the closed door and the passage, and I know that I spread myself stiff against the wall. A clunk, 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 clunk of the great hoof falls passed right between us, and slowly, with deadly deliberateness, down the passage. I heard them through a haze of blood beats in my ears and temples, and my body extraordinarily rigid and pringling and breathless. I stood for a little time like this, my head turned so that I should see up the passage. I was conscious only that there was a hideous danger abroad. Do you understand? And then, suddenly, my pluck came back to me. I was aware that the noise of the hoofbeats sounded near the other end of the passage. I twisted quickly, and got my camera to bear, and snapped the flashlight. Immediately afterward, Beaumont let fly a storm of shots down the passage, and began to run, shouting, "'It's after Mary! Run! Run!' He rushed down the passage, and I after him. We came out on the main landing, and heard the sound of a hoof on the stairs, and after that, nothing, and from thence onwards, nothing. Down below us in the big hall I could see a number of the household round Miss Hisgins, who seemed to have fainted, and there were several of the servants clumped together a little way off, staring up at the main landing.' and no one saying a single word. And about some twenty steps up the stairs was old Captain Hisgins with a drawn sword in his hand, where he had halted just below the last hoof-sound. I think I never saw anything finer than the old man standing there between his daughter and that infernal thing. I dare say you can understand the queer feeling of horror I had at passing that place on the stairs where the sounds had ceased. It was as if the monster were still standing there, invisible, and the peculiar thing was that we never heard another sound of the hoof, either up or down the stairs. After they had taken Miss Hisgins to her room, I sent word that I should follow so soon as they were ready for me, and presently, when the message came to me that I could come any time, I asked her father to give me a hand with my instrument-box, and between us we carried it into the girl's bedroom. I had the bed pulled well out into the middle of the room, after which I erected the electric pentacle round the bed. Then I directed that lamps should be placed round the room, but that on no account must any light be made within the pentacle, neither must any one pass in or out. The girl's mother I had placed within the pentacle, and directed that her maid should sit without, ready to carry any message, so as to make sure that Mrs. Hisgins did not have to leave the pentacle. I suggested also that the girl's father should stay the night in the room, and that he had better be armed. When I left the room, I found Beaumont waiting outside the door in a miserable state of anxiety. I told him what I had done, and explained to him that Miss Hisgins was probably perfectly safe within the protection, but that, in addition to her father remaining the night in the room, I intended to stand guard at the door.' I told him that I should like him to keep me company, for I knew that he could never sleep, and I should not be sorry to have a companion. Also, I wanted to have him under my own observation, for there was no doubt but that he was actually in greater danger than the girl. At least that was my opinion, and is still, as I think you will agree later. I asked him whether he would object to my drawing a pentacle round him for the night, and got him to agree, but I saw that he did not know whether to be superstitious about it, or to regard it more as a piece of foolish mobbing. But he took it seriously enough when I gave him some particulars about the Black Veil case, when young Astor died. You remember, he said it was a piece of silly superstition, and stayed outside. Poor devil! As it chanced, the night passed quietly enough— until a little while before dawn, when we both heard the sounds of a great horse galloping round and round the house, just as old Captain Hisgins had described it. You can imagine how queer it made me feel, and directly afterward I heard someone stir within the room. I knocked at the door, for I was uneasy, and the captain came. I asked whether everything was right, to which he replied yes, and immediately asked me whether I had heard the sounds of the galloping, so that I knew he had heard them also. I suggested that it might be well to leave the bedroom door open a little, until the dawn came in, as there was certainly something abroad. This was done, and he went back into the room to be near his wife and daughter. I had better say here that I was doubtful whether there was any value in the defence about Miss Hisgins. For what I termed the personal sounds of the manifestation were so extraordinarily material that I was inclined to parallel the case with that of Hartford's, where the hand of the child kept materializing within the pentacle and patting the floor. As you will remember, that was a hideous business. Yet, as it chanced, nothing further happened, and so soon as daylight had fully come, we all went off to bed. Beaumont knocked me up about midday, and I went down and made breakfast into lunch. Miss Hisgins was there, and seemed in very fair spirits, considering. She told me that I had made her feel almost safe for the first time for days. She told me also that her cousin, Harry Parskett, was coming down from London, and she knew that he would do anything to help fight the ghost. And after that she and Beaumont went out into the grounds to have a little time together. I had a walk in the grounds myself, and went round the house, but saw no traces of hoof-marks, and after that I spent the rest of the day making an examination of the house, but found nothing. I made an end of my search before dark, and went to my room to dress for dinner. When I got down the cousin had just arrived, and I found him one of the nicest men I have met for a long time a chap with a tremendous amount of pluck, and the particular kind of man I like to have with me in a bad case like the one I was on. I could see that what puzzled him most was our belief in the genuineness of the haunting, and I found myself almost wanting something to happen, just to show him how true it was. As it chanced, something did happen, with a vengeance. Beaumont and Miss Hiskins had gone out for a stroll in the dusk and Captain Hisgins asked me to come into his study for a short chat, whilst Parsket went upstairs with his traps, for he had no man with him. I had a long conversation with the old captain, in which I pointed out that the haunting had evidently no particular connection with the house, but only with the girl herself, and that the sooner she was married the better, as it would give Beaumont a right to be with her at all times. And further than this, it might be that the manifestations would cease if the marriage were actually performed. The old man nodded agreement to this, especially to the first part, and reminded me that three of the girls who were said to have been haunted had been sent away from home, and met their deaths whilst away. And then, in the midst of our talk, there came a pretty frightening interruption, for all at once the old butler rushed into the room, most extraordinarily pale. "'Miss Mary, sir! Miss Mary, sir!' he gasped out, using the old name. "'She's screaming! Out in the park, sir! And they say they can hear the horse!' The captain made one dive for a rack of arms, and snatched down his old sword, and ran out, drawing it as he ran. I dashed out and up the stairs, snatched my camera flashlight and a heavy revolver, gave one yell at Parsket's door, "'The horse!' and was down and into the grounds. Out in the darkness there was a confused shouting, and I caught the sounds of shooting away out among the scattered trees. And then, from a patch of blackness to my left, there burst suddenly an infernal gobbling sort of neighing. Instantly I whipped round and snapped off the flashlight. The great blare of the light blazed out momentarily, showing me the leaves of a black tree, close at hand, quivering in the night breeze. But there had been nothing else, and then the tenfold blackness came down upon me, and I heard Parsket shouting a little way back to know whether I had seen anything. The next instant he was beside me, and I felt safer for his company, for there was some incredible thing near to us, and I was momentarily blind because of the brightness of the flashlight. "'What was it? What was it?' he kept repeating in an excited voice, and all the time I was staring into the darkness, and answering, mechanically, "'I don't know, I don't know,' There was a burst of shouting somewhere ahead, and then a shot. We ran towards the sounds, yelling to the people not to shoot, for in the darkness and panic there was this danger also. Then there came two of the gamekeepers, racing hard up the drive with lanterns and their guns, and immediately afterwards a row of lights dancing toward us from the house, carried by some of the men-servants. As the lights came up, I saw we had come close to Beaumont, He was standing over Miss Hisgins, and he had his revolver in his right hand. Then I saw his face, and there was a great wound across his forehead. By him was the captain, turning his naked sword this way and that, and peering into the darkness, and a little behind him stood the old butler, a battle-axe from one of the arm-stands in the hall in his hands. Yet there was nothing strange to be seen anywhere.' We got the girl into the house, and left her with her mother and Beaumont, whilst a groom rode for a doctor, and then the rest of us, with four other keepers, all armed with guns and carrying lanterns, searched round the home park. But we found nothing. When we got back, we found that the doctor had been. He had bound up Beaumont's wound, which luckily was not deep, and ordered Miss Hisgins straight to bed. I went upstairs with the captain and found Beaumont on guard outside the girl's door. I asked him how he felt, and then, so soon as they were ready for us, Captain Hisgins and I went into the bedroom and fixed the pentacle again round the bed. They had already got lamps about the room, and after I had set the same order of watching as on the previous night, I joined Beaumont outside of the door. Parsket had come up while I had been in the bedroom, and between us we got some idea from Beaumont as to what had happened out in the park. It seems that they were coming home after their stroll from the direction of the West Lodge, when suddenly Miss Hiskins said, "'Hush!' and came to a standstill. He stopped and listened, but heard nothing for a little. Then he caught it, the sound of a horse seemingly a long way off, galloping towards them over the grass. He told the girl that it was nothing, and started to hurry her towards the house. But she was not deceived, of course. In less than a minute they heard it quite close to them in the dark, and they began to run. Then Miss Hisgins caught her foot and fell. She began to scream, and that is what the butler heard. As Beaumont lifted the girl, he heard the hoofs come thudding right at him. He stood over her and fired all five chambers of his revolver at the sounds. He told us that he was sure he saw something that looked like an enormous horse's head ride upon him in the light of the last flash of his pistol. Immediately afterwards he was struck a tremendous blow, which knocked him down, and then the captain and the butler came running up, shouting. The rest, of course, we knew. About ten o'clock the butler brought us up a tray for which I was very glad, as the night before I had got rather hungry. I warned Beaumont, however, to be very particular not to drink any spirits, and I also made him give me his pipe and matches. At midnight I drew a pentacle round him, and Parsket and I sat one on each side of him, but outside of the pentacle, for I had no fear that there would be any manifestation made against any one except Beaumont or Miss Hiskins.' After that we kept pretty quiet. The passage was lit by a big lamp at each end, so that we had plenty of light, and we were all armed, Beaumont and I with revolvers, and Parsket with a shotgun. In addition to my weapon I had my camera and flashlight. Now and again we talked in whispers, and twice the captain came out of the bedroom to have a word with us. About half-past one we had all grown very silent, and suddenly— about twenty minutes later I held up my hand silently, for there seemed to me to be a sound of galloping out in the night. I knocked at the bedroom door for the captain to open it, and when he came, I whispered to him that we thought we heard the horse. For some time we stayed listening, and both Parsket and the captain thought they heard it. But now I was not so sure, neither was Beaumont, yet afterwards I thought I heard it again. I told Captain Hisgins I thought he had better go back into the bedroom and leave the door a little open, and this he did. But from that time onward we heard nothing, and presently the dawn came in, and we all went very thankfully to bed. When I was called at lunchtime I had a little surprise, for Captain Hisgins told me that they had held a family council, and had decided to take my advice, and have the marriage without a day's more delay than possible. Beaumont was already on his way to London to get a special license, and they hoped to have the wedding the next day. This pleased me, for it seemed the sanest thing to be done in the extraordinary circumstances, and meanwhile I should continue my investigations, but until the marriage was accomplished my chief thought was to keep Miss Hisgins near to me. After lunch I thought I would take a few experimental photographs of Miss Hisgins and her surroundings. "'Sometimes the camera sees things that would seem very strange to normal human eyesight. "'You see what I mean? "'With this intention, and partly to make an excuse to keep her in my company as much as possible, "'I asked Miss Hiskins to join me in my experiments. "'She seemed glad to do this, and I spent several hours with her, "'wandering all over the house from room to room.' and whenever the impulse came, I took a flashlight of her and the room or corner in which we chanced to be at the moment. After we had gone right through the house in this fashion, I asked her whether she felt sufficiently brave to repeat the experiments in the cellars. She said yes, and so I rooted out Captain Hiskins and Parsket, for I was not going to take her down even into what you might call artificial darkness without help and companionship at hand. When we were ready, we went down into the wine cellar, Captain Hiskins carrying a shotgun, and Parsket a specially prepared background and a lantern. I got the girl to stand in the middle of the cellar, whilst Parsket and the captain held out the background behind her. Then I fired off the flashlights, and we went into the next cellar, where we repeated the experiment. Then in the third cellar, a tremendous pitch-dark place, "'Something extraordinary and horrible manifested itself. "'I had stationed Miss Hisgins in the centre of the place, "'with her father and Parsket holding the background as before. "'But all this was ready, and just as I pressed the trigger of the flash, "'there came in the cellar that dreadful gobbling neighing "'that I had heard out in the park. "'It seemed to come from somewhere above the girl, "'and in the glare of the sudden light,' I saw that she was staring tensely upward at no visible thing, and then, in the succeeding comparative darkness, I was shouting to the captain and Parsket to run Miss Hisgins out into the daylight. This was done instantly, and I shut and locked the door, afterwards making the first and the eighth signs of the psalm our ritual opposite to each post, and connecting them across the threshold with a triple line. In the meanwhile, Parskett and Captain Hisgins carried the girl to her mother, and left her there in a half-fainting condition, whilst I stayed on guard outside the cellar door, feeling pretty horrible, for I knew that there was some disgusting thing inside, and along with this feeling there was a sense of half-ashableness, rather miserable, you know, because I had exposed Miss Hisgins to this danger. I had got the captain's shotgun. And when he and Parsket came down again, they were each carrying guns and lanterns. I could not possibly tell you the utter belief of spirit and body that came to me when I heard them coming, but just try to imagine what it was like standing outside of that cellar. Can you? I remembered noticing just before I went to unlock the door how white and ghastly Parsket looked, and the old captain was gray-looking and I wondered whether my face was like theirs. And this, you know, had its own distinct effect upon my nerves, for it seemed to bring the beastliness of the thing bashed down on me in a fresh way. I know it was only sheer will-power that carried me up to the door and made me turn the key. I paused one little moment, and then, with a nervy jerk, sent the door wide open and held my lantern over my head. Parsket and the captain came one on each side of me, and held up their lanterns, but the place was absolutely empty. Of course, I did not trust to a casual look of this kind, but spent several hours, with the help of the two others, in sounding every square foot of the floor, ceiling, and walls. Yet, in the end, I had to admit that the place itself was absolutely normal, and so, in the end, we came away none the wiser. But I sealed the door, and outside, opposite each door-post, I made the first and last signs of the Sama ritual, joining them as before with a triple line. Can you imagine what it was like searching that cellar? When we got upstairs, I inquired very anxiously how Miss Hisgins was, and the girl came out herself to tell me she was all right, and that I was not to trouble about her or blame myself as I told her I had been doing. I felt happier then, and went off to dress for dinner, and after that was done with, Parsket and I went off to one of the bathrooms to develop the negatives that I had been taking, yet none of the plates had anything to tell me until we came to the one that was taken in the cellar. Parsket was developing, and I had taken a batch of the fixed plates out into the lamplight to examine them. I had just gone carefully through the lot, when I heard a shout from Parsket, and when I ran to him, he was looking at a partly developed negative which he was holding up to the red lamp, it showed the girl plainly looking upward as I had seen her, but the thing that astonished me was the shadow of an enormous hoof right above her, as if it were coming down upon her out of the shadows, and you know, I had run her bang into that danger. That was the thought that was chief in my mind. As soon as the developing was complete, I fixed the plate, and examined it carefully in a good light. There was no doubt about it at all. The thing above Miss Hisgins was an enormous shadowy hoof. Yet I was no nearer to coming to any definite knowledge, and the only thing I could do was to warn Parsket to say nothing about it to the girl, for it would only increase her fright.' "'but I showed the thing to her father, "'for I considered it right that he should know. "'That night we took the same precautions "'for Miss Hiskin's safety as on the two previous nights, "'and Parsket kept me company. "'Yet the dawn came in without anything unusual having happened, "'and I went off to bed. "'When I got down to lunch, "'I learnt that Beaumont had wired to say "'that he would be in soon after four, "'also that a message had been sent to the rector and it was generally plain that the ladies of the house were in a tremendous fluster. Beaumont's train was late, and he did not get home until five, but even then the rector had not put in an appearance, and the butler came in to say that the coachman had returned without him, as he had been called away unexpectedly. Twice more during the evening the carriage was sent down, but the clergyman had not returned, and we had to delay the marriage until the next day. "'That night I ranged the defence round the girl's bed, "'and the captain and his wife sat up with her, as before. "'Beaumont, as I expected, insisted on keeping watch with me, "'and he seemed in a curiously frightened mood, "'not for himself, you know, but for Miss Hisgins. "'He had a horrible feeling, he told me, "'that there would be a final dreadful attempt "'on his sweetheart that night. "'This, of course, I told him, was nothing but nerves.' yet really it made me feel very anxious, for I have seen too much not to know that under such circumstances a premonitory conviction of impending danger is not necessarily to be put down entirely to nerves. In fact, Beaumont was so simply and earnestly convinced that the night would bring some extraordinary manifestation, that I got Parsket to rig up a long cord from the wire of the butler's bell to come along the passage handy. To the butler himself I gave directions not to undress, and to give the same order to two of the footmen. If I rang, he was to come instantly with the footmen, carrying lanterns, and the lanterns were to be kept ready lit all night. If, for any reason, the bell did not ring, and I blew my whistle, he was to take that as a signal in the place of the bell. After I had arranged all these minor details, I drew a pentacle about Beaumont, and warned him very particularly to stay within it, whatever happened. And when this was done, there was nothing to do but wait, and pray that the night would go as quietly as the night before. We scarcely talked at all, and by about one a.m. we were all very tense and nervous, so that, at last, Parsket got up and began to walk up and down the corridor to steady himself a bit. Presently I slipped off my pumps and joined him, and we walked up and down, whispering occasionally for something over an hour, until, in turning, I caught my foot in the bell cord and went down on my face, but without hurting myself or making a noise. When I got up, Parsket nudged me. Did you notice that the bell never rang? he whispered. Jove! "'I said, "'You're right.' "'Wait a minute,' he answered. "'I'll bet it's only a kink somewhere in the cord.' "'He left his gun and slipped along the passage, "'and taking the top lamp, "'tiptoed away into the house, "'carrying Beaumont's revolver ready in his right hand. "'He was a plucky chap, as I think you will admit.' "'Suddenly Beaumont motioned to me for absolute quiet. "'Directly afterwards, I heard the thing for which he listened, the sound of a horse galloping out in the night. I think that, I may say, I fairly shivered. The sound died away and left a horrible, desolate, eerie feeling in the air, you know. I put my hand out to the bell-cord, hoping the pasket had got it clear. Then I waited, glancing before and behind. Perhaps two minutes passed, full of what seemed like an almost unearthly quiet. And then, suddenly, down the corridor, at the lighted end, there sounded the clumping of a great hoof, and instantly the lamp was thrown down with a tremendous crash, and we were in the dark. I tugged hard on the cord and blew the whistle. Then I raised my snapshot and fired the flashlight. The corridor blazed in brilliant light, but there was nothing, and then the darkness fell like thunder. I heard the captain at the bedroom door, and shouted to him to bring out a lamp, quick, but instead something started to kick the door, and I heard the captain shouting within the bedroom, and then the screaming of the women. I had a sudden horrible fear that the monster had got into the bedroom, but in the same instant from up the corridor there came abruptly the vile gobbling neighing that we had heard in the park and the cellar. I blew the whistle again, and groped blindly for the bell-cord, shouting to Beaumont to stay in the pentacle, whatever happened. I yelled again to the captain to bring out a lamp, and there came a smashing sound against the bedroom door. Then I had my matches in my hand to get some light before that incredible unseen monster was upon us. The match scraped on the box and flared up, dully, and in the same instant I heard a faint sound behind me. I whipped round in a kind of mad terror and saw something in the light of the match. A monstrous horse-head, close to Beaumont. "'Look out, Beaumont!' I shouted in a sort of scream. "'It's behind you!' The match went out abruptly, and instantly there came the huge bang of Parsket's double barrel, both barrels at once— "'fired, evidently single-handed, by Beaumont, close to my ear, as it seemed. "'I caught a momentary glimpse of the great head in the flash, "'and of an enormous hoof amid the belch and fire of smoke "'seeming to be descending upon Beaumont. "'In the same instant I fired three chambers of my revolver. "'There was the sound of a dull blow, "'and then that horrible gobbling neigh broke out close to me. I fired twice at the sound. Immediately afterwards, something struck me, and I was knocked backwards. I got onto my knees and shouted for help at the top of my voice. I heard the women screaming behind the closed door of the bedroom, and was dully aware that the door was being smashed from the inside, and directly afterwards I knew that Beaumont was struggling with some hideous thing near to me. For an instant I held back, stupidly, paralyzed with funk, and then, blindly, and in a sort of rigid chill of goose-flesh, I went to help him, shouting his name. I can tell you I did not feel much of a hero. There came a little choking scream out of the darkness, and at that I jumped forward into the dark. I gripped a vast furry ear. Then something struck me, another great blow, knocking me sick. I hit back, weak and blind, and gripped with my other hand at the incredible thing. Abruptly I was dimly aware of a tremendous crash behind me, and a great burst of light. There were other lights in the passage, and a noise of feet and shouting. My hand-grips were torn from the thing they held. I shut my eyes, stupid.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
1: slash host. I heard a loud yell above me, and then a heavy blow like a butcher chopping meat, and something fell upon me. I was helped to my knees by the captain and the butler, On the floor lay an enormous horse-head, out of which protruded a man's trunk and legs. On the wrists were fixed great hoofs. It was the monster. The captain cut something with the sword that he held in his hand, and stooped and lifted off the mask, for that is what it was. I saw the face then of the man who had worn it. It was Parsket. He had a bad wound across the forehead, where the captain's sword had hit through the mask. I looked bewilderedly from him to Beaumont. who was sitting up, leaning against the wall of the corridor. Then I stared at Parsket again. By Jove! I said at last. And then I was quiet, for I was so ashamed for the man. You can understand, can't you? And he was opening his eyes, and— You know, I had grown so to like the man. And then, you know, just as Parsket was getting back his wits, and looking from one to the other of us, and beginning to remember, there happened a strange and incredible thing. Far from the end of the corridor there sounded, suddenly, the clamping of a great hoof. I looked that way, and then instantly at Parsket, and saw a horrible fear in his face and eyes. He wrenched himself round, weakly, and stared in mad terror up the corridor to where the sound had been, and the rest of us stared, all in a frozen group. I remember hearing vaguely half-sobs and whispers from Miss Hisgins' bedroom, all the while that I stared, frightenedly, up the corridor. The silence lasted several seconds, and then, abruptly, there came again the clumping of the great hoof, away up at the end of the corridor and immediately afterward the clunk, 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 clunk of mighty hoofs coming down the passage towards us. Even then, you know, most of us thought it was some mechanism of Parsket still at work, and we were in the queerest mixture of fright and doubt. I think everyone looked at Parsket, and suddenly the captain shouted out, "'Stop this damned fooling at once! Haven't you done enough?' For my part, you know, I was frightened, for I had a sense that there was something horrible and wrong. And then Parsket managed to gasp out, "'It's not me! My God, it's not me! My God, it's not me!' And then, you know, it seemed to come home to everyone in an instant that there was really some dreadful thing coming down the passage. There was a mad rush up the passage, and even old Captain Hisgins gave back with the butler and the footman. Beaumont fainted outright, as I found out afterwards he had been badly mauled. I just flattened back against the wall, kneeling, as I was too stupid and dazed even to run, and almost in the same instant the ponderous hoof-falls sounded close to me, and seeming to shake the solid floor, as they passed. Abruptly the great sounds ceased, and I knew in a sort of sick fashion that the thing had halted opposite to the open door of the girl's bedroom. And then, you know, I was aware that Parsket was standing rocking in the doorway with his arms spread across so as to fill the doorway with his body. Parsket showed extraordinarily pale, and the blood was running down his face from the wound in his forehead and then I noticed that he seemed to be looking at something in the passage with a peculiar, desperate, fixed gaze. But there was really nothing to be seen, and suddenly the clunk, clunk, clunk recommenced and passed onward down the passage. And in the same moment Parsket pitched forward out of the doorway onto his face. There were shouts from the huddle of men down the passage, and the two footmen and the butler simply ran, carrying their lanterns, but the captain went against the side wall with his back and put the lamp he was carrying over his head. The dull tread of the horse went past him and left him unharmed, and I heard the monstrous hooffalls going away and away through the quiet house. And after that, dead silence. Then the captain moved and came towards us, very slow and shaky and with an extraordinarily grey face. I crept towards Parsket's, and the captain came to help me. We turned him over, and... You know, I knew in a moment that he was dead. But You can imagine what a feeling it sent through me. I looked at the captain, and suddenly he said, That... 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 And I know that he was trying to tell me that Parsket had stood between his daughter and whatever it was that had gone down the passage. I stood up and studied him, though I was not very steady myself. And suddenly... His face began to work, and he went down on to his knees by Parsket, and cried like some shaken child. And then, you know, I knew that the women were in the doorway of the bedroom, and I turned away and left him to them, whilst I went over to Beaumont. That is practically the whole story, and the only thing that is left to me is to try to explain some of the puzzling parts here and there. Perhaps you have seen that Parsket was in love with Miss Hisgins, and this fact is the key to a good deal that was extraordinary. It was doubtless responsible for some portions of the haunting. In fact, I think for nearly everything. But, you know, I can prove nothing, and what I have to tell you is chiefly the result of deduction. In the first place, it is obvious that Parsket's intention was to frighten Beaumont away, and when he found that he could not do this, I think he grew so desperate that he really intended to kill him. I hate to say this, but the facts force me to think so. It is quite certain that Parsket was the person who broke Beaumont's arm. He knew all the details of the so-called horse legend, and got the idea to work upon the old story for his own end. He evidently had some method of slipping in and out of the house, probably through one of the many French windows.' or possibly he had a key to one or two of the garden doors, and when he was supposed to be away he was really coming down on the quiet and hiding somewhere in the neighbourhood. The incident of the kiss in the dark hall I put down to sheer nervous imaginings on the part of Beaumont and Miss Hisgins. Yet I must say that the sound of the horse outside of the front door is a little difficult to explain away, but I am still inclined to keep to my first idea on this point that there was nothing really unnatural about it. The hoof-sounds in the billiard-room and down the passage were done by Parsket from the floor below, by pumping against the panelled ceiling with a block of wood tied to one of the window-hooks. I proved this by an examination, which showed the dints in the woodwork. The sounds of the horse galloping round the house were also done by Parsket, who must have had a horse tied up in the plantation nearby, unless, indeed, he made the sounds himself. "'but I do not see how he could have gone fast enough to produce the illusion, you see. "'The gobbling neighing in the park was a ventriloquial achievement on the part of Parsket, "'and the attack out there on Beaumont was also by him, "'so that when I thought he was in his bedroom he must have been outside all the time "'and joined me after I ran out of the front door. "'This is probable. "'I mean that Parsket was the cause,' For if it had been something more serious, he would certainly have given up his foolishness, knowing that there was no longer any need for it. I cannot imagine how he escaped being shot, both then and in the last mad action, of which I have just told you. He was enormously without fear of any kind for himself, as you can see. The time when Parsket was with us, when we thought we heard the horse galloping round the house, we must have been deceived. No one was very sure, except, of course, Parsket, who would naturally encourage the belief. The neighing in the cellar is where I consider there came the first suspicion into Parsket's mind that there was something more at work than his sham-haunting. The neighing was done by him in the same way that he did it in the park. When I remember how ghastly he looked, I feel sure that the sounds must have had some infernal quality added to them. "'which frightened the man himself. "'Yet later he would persuade himself "'that he had been getting fanciful. "'Of course, I must not forget "'that the effect upon Miss Hisgins "'must have made him feel pretty miserable. "'Then, about the clergyman being called away, "'we found afterwards that it was a bogus errand, "'or rather call, "'and it is obvious that Parsket was at the bottom of this, "'so as to get a few more hours in which to achieve his end.' "'and what that was a very little imagination will show you, "'for he had found that Beaumont would not be frightened away. "'You see what I mean? "'Then there is no doubt at all but that Parsket left the cord of the butler's bell in a tangle, "'or hitched somewhere, so as to give him an excuse to slip away naturally to clear it. "'This also gave him the opportunity to remove one of the passage-lamps.' Then he had only to smash the other, and the passage was in utter darkness, for him to make the attempt on Beaumont. In the same way, it was he who locked the door of the bedroom, and took the key. It was in his pocket. This prevented the captain from bringing a light and coming to the rescue, but Captain Hisgins broke down the door with the heavy fender-curb, and it was his smashing the door that had sounded so confusing and frightening in the darkness of the passage. "'The photograph of the monstrous hoof above Miss Hisgins in the cellar "'is one of the things that I am less sure about. "'It might have been faked by Parsket whilst I was out of the room, "'and this would have been easy enough to anyone who knew how. "'But, you know, it does not look like a fake. "'Yet there is as much evidence of probability that it was faked as against, "'and the thing is too vague for an examination to help at a definite decision.' so that I will express no opinion one way or the other. It was certainly a horrible photograph. And now I come to that last dreadful thing. There has been no further manifestation of anything abnormal, so that there is an extraordinary uncertainty in my conclusions. If we had not heard those last sounds, and if Parsket had not shown that enormous sense of fear, The whole of this case could be explained away in the way in which I have shown, and, in fact, as you have seen, I am of the opinion that almost all of it can be cleared up. But I see no way of going past the thing we heard at the last, and the fear that Parsket showed. His death? No, that proves nothing. At the inquest it was described somewhat untechnically as due to heart spasms that is normal enough, and leaves us quite in the dark as to whether he died because he stood between the girl and some incredible monster. The look on Parsket's face, and the thing he called out, when he heard the great hoof sounds coming down the passage, seemed to show that he had the sudden realization of what before then may have been nothing more than a horrible suspicion, and his fear and appreciation of some tremendous danger approaching was probably more keenly real even than mine. And then he did the one fine great thing. "'And the cause,' I said, "'what caused it?' Carnacki shook his head. "'God knows,' he answered, with a peculiar, sincere reverence. "'If that thing was what it seemed to be, one might suggest an explanation which would not offend one's reason, but which may be utterly wrong.' Yet I have thought, though it would take a long lecture on thought induction to get you to appreciate my reasons, that Parsket had produced what I might term a kind of induced haunting, a kind of induced simulation of his mental conceptions, due to his desperate thoughts and broodings. It is impossible to make it clearer in a few words. But the old story, I said, why may not there have been something in that? There may have been something in that, said Karnaki quietly, but I do not think it had anything to do with this. I have not clearly thought out my reasons yet, but later I may be able to tell you why I think so. And the marriage, and the cellar, was there anything found there? asked Taylor. Yes, the marriage was performed that day, in spite of the tragedy, Karnaki told us. It was the wisest thing to do, considering the things that I cannot explain. Yes, I had the floor of that big cellar up, for I had a feeling that I might find something there to give me some light. But there was nothing. You know, the whole thing is tremendous and extraordinary. I shall never forget the look on Parsket's face, and afterwards the disgusting sounds of those great hoofs going away through the quiet house. "'Kanaki stood up. "'Out you go,' he said in friendly fashion, "'using the recognized formula. "'And we went presently out into the quiet of the embankment "'and so to our homes.'
2: If you are interested, The Horse of the Invisible was adapted for television and appeared as an episode in the BBC series The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. It starred Donald Pleasance as our Ghostfinder General and is available on DVD. It's part of the permanent collection here in the Nook, and I can recommend it. Before moving on to... Carnacki's next exploration into the invisible, as Omar Khayyam might say, let me mention that when I asked William Meikle to allow us to read one of his Carnacki tales, he offered treason and plot. I also asked him at the time which of the stories from the canon he thought would best meld with treason and plot. I always liked The Horse of the Invisible and would love to hear a pairing. Well, imagine that said in a thick Scottish brogue. For our non-British friends, the title, Treason and Plot, comes from Guy Fawkes' planned attempt to assassinate King James, King James I, and to blow up the House of Lords during its opening ser- Well, everybody knows that, so, Larry, be still. Here, paired with the Horse of the Invisible, is William Meekle's Treason and Plot.
1: "'I was late in reaching Cheney Gardens that night in early November. "'The whole length of the embankment was closed all the way from Chelsea to Waterloo Bridge, "'and the underground system had been brought to a halt. "'An Irish plot,' the thunderer said, "'and the evidence of many policemen along the byways seemed to indicate that something was indeed afoot. "'But it was not enough to keep me from my appointment.' Carnaki's card had intimated that he had a new tale to tell, and I was most eager to hear my friend's latest adventure. On arrival I discovered that the others were there before me, they too showing a similar eagerness for a tale. As ever, Karnacki kept us waiting until after dinner, but none of us complained, as the meal was, as usual, magnificent, consisting of fine pheasant and mashed potatoes, Washed down with some particularly fine London porter from the Chiswick Brewery that Carnacki favoured. We retired to the parlour at eight thirty and got our drinks charged and fresh smokes lit. Carnacki gave us several seconds to settle, then launched straight into his tale. My tale begins in the early hours of Sunday morning, he began. I had spent Saturday in further examination of the deeper caves in Chislehurst, and, being somewhat fatigued, had fallen into a deep sleep that I was loath to leave. But the insistent knocking on my front door would brook no argument, and I was forced rudely from my bed to answer it. Three policemen stood on the step, which I am sure you'll agree is never a good sign, never mind at two-thirty on a Sunday morning. As it turned out, the policemen were nearly as clueless as I was regarding the situation at hand. They had merely been sent as emissaries from the Home Secretary. I soon discovered there was a bit of a flap-on at Parliament, one that required my particular field of expertise. I was given scarcely ten minutes to do my ablutions and get dressed before I was hurried out into a carriage and off along the riverside. The driver was obviously under orders, for we fair rattled across the cobbles, and I felt quite shaken by the time we came to a stop outside Parliament. There were more policemen there. A cordon of them, around a portly figure I quickly recognized as the home secretary. After a cursory handshake, no time was wasted in leading me down to the bowels of the old building, deep into the sewers and tunnels— to a spot that showed signs of having been there since the medieval and maybe even the Roman era. At any other time, I would have stopped to investigate the masonry, for it looked to be particularly finely tooled. But the secretary was insistent that we keep moving, and his urgency even seeped into me so much that we proceeded at a fast walk through the warren of tunnels. I started to smell water and if my mental map was accurate, I guessed we were nearing the Thames. My feeling was proved right when we came to a series of steps that descended down into the river, but that was not what I had been brought to see. A body lay on the ground, inside a pentacle drawn in chalk, itself inside three concentric rings, circled with a great many scrawled symbols. Burned-down candles sat at each point cold now to the touch. The body had been burned beyond recognition, an amorphous mass of charred bone and ash. "'I don't know what I can do here,' I said, kneeling beside the body. The secretary was staring at where the river lapped against the old stone steps, and he looked pale, almost sickly. "'It is not the body we need you to examine,' he said. He motioned at the chalk pentacle, and the inscription drawn around its outer ring. I understand this is your area of expertise. I did indeed recognize some of the symbols, but by no means all, and I could already see that it was the basis of a ritual I was unfamiliar with. You wish for me to find out what he was doing? I asked. There was a splash out in the river, and the secretary started to edge away into the tunnels, dragging me with him. No, Mr. Carnacki," he said, starting to walk faster. I need you to find out what he was doing wrong. Ten minutes later the secretary had some color back in his cheeks. It might have had something to do with the warmth of the fire in his office, two floors above the terrace of the main house. It also might have had something to do with the anger with which he berated the poor cleaning lady for cleaning his room when he needed it. I tried to placate the woman with a smile, but her scowl told me that she was not in the mood, and a curt Irish accent informing me to "'Move aside, sir!' showed me who was boss here. However, I have a feeling that the redness in the secretary's cheeks had more to do with the large snifter of scotch he had downed as soon as we got up from the tunnels. And by Jove I took to a drink of my own readily enough when he started to tell me the reason I had been summoned. As is usual with politicians, he took rather a long way round the subject. "'What do you know about the history of the city?' he asked, chewing on the largest cigar I had ever seen. I might have replied with a display of my knowledge, but he did not give me an opportunity, merely continued straight on. "'You do, of course, know what date it is?' he asked, confusing me further. But what you may not know, he said, is that every year at this time, for five days during and after Samhain, it has been necessary for us to appease the old god of the river, lest it consumes us utterly. He said it in such a matter-of-fact manner that at first I did not believe I had heard him properly, but when I pressed him he repeated the assertion. "'It has been going on for us as long as we have been keeping records,' the secretary said, and motioned towards a small stack of leather-bound tomes on his desk. The last time there was any disruption was back in 1605, when Guy Fawkes decided to try to stop the ceremony and let matters take their course. Since then all has been quiet, until to-night.' He had another chew on the cigar.' David Crowther had the duty for nearly twenty years with no problems, and despite David's retirement, and this being the first outing for a new man, we foresaw none last night. Young Peter Rogers went down into the tunnel at eleven-thirty, and the result is what you have so recently seen. We need you, Mr. Carnacki, for if you cannot fathom what has happened— then I fear that to-morrow the Ancient One will rise up completely from the river, and who knows what might happen then. Carnacki paused to knock out his pipe, and never one to let an opportunity pass, Arkwright piped up. I say, Carnacki, this politician chappie sounds just like you do. If I'd known they believed in spooks and ghoulies, I might be a tad more inclined to vote for them. "'I remember at the last Hustings, I—' "'Karnacki stopped him with a single upraised hand, "'and the rest of us breathed a silent sigh of relief, "'for we knew of old how quickly Arkwright could derail an evening "'if given his head. "'We were saved that ordeal, "'as Carnacki went straight on with his tale. "'As Arkwright has pointed out, "'The secretary did indeed sound like someone "'who was intimately familiar with my own area of enthusiasm. "'But I quickly found out that he only knew as much as he had already imparted, "'and that details were not his strong point. "'I requested leave to return to the tunnel, "'all the better to examine the pentacle drawn there, "'but I was refused, somewhat curtly. "'The site has already been cleaned.' "'the secretary said, almost as if he was proud of the fact. "'We cannot have anyone else discovering this particular secret. "'Can you imagine if it got out?' "'I believe that what I could imagine and what he could imagine "'would vary rather wildly. "'But I kept my mouth shut, "'and merely asked just what I was supposed to do "'without the evidence from the tunnels. "'He waved towards the books on his desk.' THE ANSWER TO ALL YOUR QUESTIONS IS IN THERE, AND PHOTOGRAPHS WERE TAKEN OF THE SCENE BEFORE YOU ARRIVED. THEY ARE BEING DEVELOPED AS WE SPEAK, AND YOU SHALL HAVE THEM ANON. NOW, IF YOU'LL EXCUSE ME, I MUST BRIEF THE P.M.' AND WITH THAT I WAS LEFT ALONE, WITH ONLY THE OLD BOOKS FOR COMPANY. I opened the office door to find two policemen standing guard, and I was told in no uncertain terms that I would not be allowed to leave Parliament until the matter at hand had been resolved. Indeed, I am probably breaking several laws in merely relating this story to you chaps here tonight. Such was the secrecy surrounding the facts of the case. I gave in to the inevitable, and pausing only to ask for a pot of tea to be brought. "'returned to the office, and began my perusal of the books on the desk. "'It was not long before I had forgot about the policeman, "'as I became transported back to a history of London "'I had never before been privy to, "'one that had purposefully been kept from the people "'to protect them from one simple fact. "'London only exists because a way was found "'to mollify its original inhabitant.' a creature so old and so foul that the very sight of it could drive a man mad. It seemed to be a creature of paradoxes, a controller of flame that lived in the water, a vast monster that could encompass the city, yet disappear through the smallest of holes. The story was a long one, and its beginnings have been lost in antiquity. I will not bore you, chaps, with the Roman tales, nor even the older druidic songs that came before. Suffice to say that over the centuries a means was discovered to keep the old thing in the river in check, but not before the city had burned time and time again. It was only the stubborn refusal of the Romans to be beaten by a god that was not their own that led to the initial subduing of the river deity. It was they who started the tradition of lighting bonfires at strategic points along the river on Samhain, and the days immediately following, a tradition that continues to this very day, and indeed one that has grown far beyond its original intent. But I am getting ahead of myself. Over the centuries, since its inception in Roman times, the ritual has been improved and modified yet essentially it has remained true to its primitive origins, a simple pentacle and a series of chants. In almost every case they have proved enough, if performed in the proper order on the proper dates, to keep the old thing in the river quiet. But not to-night. I had seen for myself the result of Mr. Rogers' attempt on the ritual. It was now my duty to ensure that such immolation did not happen again, and, more than that, to ensure that the river stayed quiet for another year. Now, before I go any further, I can see that Arkwright is full to bursting with questions, and I believe I know what these will concern. You are all no doubt anxious to know what part, if any, the Guy Fawkes story plays in my tale. It will not surprise you to learn that the passageway in which Fawkes was captured was the very one in which I had stood not an hour earlier. But the books before me on the home secretary's desk told a far different tale to the one all children know. And here I must plead secrecy, for the conspiracy that covered up the true story encompasses all the high ranks of society of its day "'from ministers to archbishops, "'from mayors to monarchy. "'Suffice to say "'that Fox had no plan "'to blow up the Parliament "'with gunpowder. "'No, his plan was to disrupt "'the ritual and to allow "'the ancient evil to do the job "'for him. "'As it turned out, "'Fox's capture allowed the government "'to reinstate the old system "'of protective bonfires "'on the prescribed date every year.' Falk's act, instead of destroying Parliament as he desired, had the exact opposite effect, and has ensured the integrity of the house down to this very day. Until now. For if I could not discover what had gone wrong with the ritual, then the old one would rise up from the river. The older books were quite clear on what could be expected. One particular wood-carving stays in my memory. It was done some time in the Norman era, and shows a bridge over the river near Westminster. Something is crawling up out of the water, something amorphous and almost slug-like. Flames belch from several mouth-like orifices, and everything the beast has touched is charred and black. By the time I had finished with the books, thin sunlight washed in through the window behind me. A young policeman arrived bearing a breakfast tray and a sealed envelope addressed to myself. I allowed myself a helping of tea and toast and a most welcome pipe of tobacco before broaching the envelope. As I had been promised, it was the photographs of the scene of the botched ritual. The photographer had done a dashed fine job of it, and all the symbols on the pentacle had been fully documented.' "'Unfortunately for me, they also looked to be exactly as I would have expected. "'There was no sign of what might have caused the ritual to go so badly wrong.' Karnaki stopped and rose from his chair. "'We all knew from long acquaintance that this was a signal for a natural breaking point in the tale, "'and a chance for us to refill our glasses and arrange fresh smokes.' Carnacki had also been right about Arkwright. Our old friend was close to bursting with questions. "'I'm jolly confused, old man,' he said, corralling Carnacki at the drinks cabinet. "'Are you saying that Fox wasn't a cad after all? Or is he still a cad, just a different sort?' Carnacki laughed. <laughs> "'Let us just say that he tried to dabble in the outer realms, and like other dabblers before him, got his just deserts, "'But we should not even be discussing such matters,' he said. "'I was informed, most forcibly by the Home Secretary, that should I disclose any part of Falk's tale, then I, and any one that I told, could be tried for treason. I believe they still hang you for that, and I am rather fond of my neck, thank you very much.' All the blood fled from Arkwright's face, and he looked so stricken that only a friendly pat on the shoulder from Karnaki placated him. "'Come, old friend,' Karnaki said. "'The rest of the tale is not a matter of national security, as far as I know. You can listen to it without fear of the noose. If any of us noticed that Arkwright poured himself a larger snifter than was usual, none of us spoke of it.' "'Several minutes later we were once again settled in our chairs, waiting for Karnaki to continue. "'As you chaps can see, I was now on somewhat of a sticky wicket, "'for I had nothing to report when the Home Secretary looked in on me later that morning. "'I had spent hours poring over the photographs, "'but still could see no sign of anything that might have caused the ritual to go wrong.' I could only think that the poor chap who died had made an error in part of the accompanying chant. Judging by the transcript of the ritual I had found in the books, it was a fairly straightforward, if a tad dull, affair, and difficult to get wrong, if you had your wits about you. Indeed, my study of the ins and outs of the ritual had decided me on a course of action, and when the secretary started to berate me for my perceived uselessness, I put my plan to him. I intended to carry out the ritual myself, to stand and face the thing in the river and determine what manner of thing it might be. The secretary accepted my offer without hesitation, but would not allow me to leave the house to fetch my defences. Instead, he sent two policemen on the errand, and while we were waiting on their return, treated me to a rather splendid lunch in the members' restaurant. In the course of the meal, he regaled me with tales of his adventures as a newspaper correspondent during the Boer War. I, in turn, told him of some of my own escapades. I was rather taken aback to find that he already knew about almost every case I had undertaken these past three years. He tapped at the side of his nose as he puffed on another huge cigar. "'It's not who you know, it's what you know,' he said. "'and laughed so infectiously "'that I could do nothing else but join him. "'And so it was that I was in a rather splendid mood "'by the time my kit arrived, "'and I was led once more down into the tunnels. "'The pleasant feeling lasted only as long "'as it took to reach the river. "'Once we were back on that cold shelf above the steps, "'I felt a chill seep into me, "'one that threatened to sink deep into my bones.' I warmed myself by setting up the pentacle for the coming night. I will not bore you with the details of the ritual. You have heard enough of my tales to know the basics of the protections involved in such matters. The main difference from my own system was that the pentacle I was about to employ had not come from the sixth manuscript. That in itself gave me pause, for I did not have the luxury of familiarity that I normally have on these occasions. THE POLICEMAN HAD BROUGHT MY ELECTRIC PENTACLE WITH THEM FROM MY LODGINGS, BUT I DECIDED AGAINST ITS USE AT THIS TIME, PREFERRING TO STICK WITH THE RITUAL EXACTLY AS DESCRIBED IN THE BOOK. I TOOK EXTRA TIME AND CARE OVER THE PREPARATIONS, ALL THE TIME AWARE THAT THE damp CHILL WAS GETTING EVER MORE INTENSE. BY THE TIME I FELT READY AND STEPPED INTO THE PENTACLE, IT WAS LATE EVENING. Any daylight that seeped through from beyond the steps into the river dimmed and faded, and only a small oil lamp kept the growing darkness at bay. The last remaining policeman decided not to wait with me, and I was left alone in that damp chamber. As I waited, I ran the chap through in my mind, over and over, until I was sure that I would be able to reproduce it exactly as it was written in the old book. What with that, and the smoking of a pipe, I achieved a certain degree of relaxation as the evening turned to night. As you chaps know, I have stood in some dashed tight spots in my time, but something about this one had me in a blue funk. My knees almost gave up on me, and I felt that fine luncheon roil and bubble in my belly. Something splashed out of sight at the foot of the steps just where they met the river, and that was almost it for me, but I'm glad to say I stood my ground, although my teeth clenched on the old briar-pipe so much that I found grooves there later. I started the chant, as transposed in the old book, Servo mihi per totus vestri viris, trise inter orbus, reus subsido totus, malum nessum. Now your Latin— Like mine is probably a little rusty, but it all sounded right and proper to me as I shouted it out. However, it was having little effect on the thing that pulled itself up out of the river. I saw the shadows it cast before I saw the thing itself. The walls of the tunnel took on a flickering orange glow as if a fire. "'Servo mihi per totus vestri viris!' Trice inter obus reus totus malum nessum. I called out again with more urgency this time, as a pale, fetid thing slumped up over the step to lie directly in front of me. It looked remarkably like a bloated earthworm, but one cast entirely of flame. I had seen its image before back in the woodcut in the quiet office I was now regretting ever having left. It reared up above me until what I took to be its head scraped against the ceiling of the tunnel, leaving a black charred scar to mark its passing. I could do naught but trust the ritual and repeat the chant, Servo mihi per totus vestri viris, trise inter orbus, reus subsidio totus, malum Something felt off with the chant. It did not carry any resonance, any sense of command that I might have expected. The thing obviously felt the same way. It kept coming. The skin at my cheeks started to tighten as the heat grew almost unbearable. Round about then I regretted not having employed the electric pentacle, for the worm was already encroaching on the chalk defences on the floor, crawling over the outmost circle and making for me with some speed. I stepped back just in time to avoid being burned to a crisp, and did the first thing that came to mind. I called out a banishing spell, one that had proved efficacious in other tight spots. Brilin diolalt na beata, rilin bruchtach na faluis, reelin iobar na creada, reelin dortalt na fala, tamnu ort. The thing backed away, slithering down to the water, and departing with a hiss of steam. I slumped, exhausted, against the too-hot wall of the tunnel, and surveyed the smudged marks that were all that remained of my protective circle. Like Mr. Rogers before me, I had not succeeded in my intent. The old one was not placated, and I had a feeling that it would return even stronger. I had failed completely. Carnacki paused again, but only long enough to knock out his pipe on the grate before continuing. The home secretary, of course, was not amused. He did allow me a couple of hours' rest, that I spent sleeping fitfully in an armchair in the members' bar, before once more putting me to work on the books. I took to it with some degree of urgency.' for I now knew that the beast was certain to return that very night, and stronger than before. Remembering just how hollow the chant had felt, I focused my attention on that. At first, the transcribed ritual all looked as expected, but on closer inspection with a magnifying glass, it soon became apparent that the chant itself had been tampered with. The last word, Nesum, had originally been written Resum. Someone with a steady hand had added a tail to the first letter, thereby rendering the chant completely ineffective. It could not be a coincidence that this had happened just as a new chap had taken on the job. The home secretary was apoplectic when I told him, his face redder than ever. "'Bloody sabotage!' he shouted. "'But by whom? Those books are kept under lock and key in this very room.' Only Rogers and I had access. Of course, I immediately saw something that would have been beneath his notice. And your cleaner, would she have been in the room alone? Did you ever, as you did with me, take Rogers to lunch, leaving the books on your desk?' He went pale and abruptly left the room, barking orders at the policeman outside. Meanwhile I turned my attention back to the ritual itself. I now had to ensure that I expunged the older version from my mind, and that when I chanted the modified word did not pop unbidden into the sequence. If you wish to know how this felt, you should try reciting your multiplication tables over and over again, then change one of the results and keep it changed in all subsequent recitations. It is not as easy as it seems, and nor did it prove so for me. By the time evening came around again, I was no means certain that I would be able to perform the task adequately. As a precaution, I had the Home Secretary ensure that bonfires were lit along the length of the embankment, for I knew from my reading of the books that this method had proved efficacious in the past in keeping the beast at bay. The Secretary was somewhat preoccupied with his hunt for the saboteur, but promised me that my request would be carried out forthwith. When I reached the steps in the tunnel under the house at dusk that night, I was hoping that he had been as good as his word. A deeper chill had set into the chamber, and the air was full of a sense of foreboding as I quickly redrew the protective circles. And this time I also added my electric pentacle, the rainbow glow from the valves lending me a degree of calm that I had been having difficulty in reaching otherwise and it seemed I finished my preparations just in time. Once again I saw red shadows flicker on the walls, and once again the bloated worm slumped its way up the steps towards me. I chanted, Servo mihi per totus vestre viris trice inter orbus, reus subsido totus, malum resum. The blue valve of the electric pentacle started to pulse and flare in time with my voice, and the chant took on weight and resonance. Servo mihi petotus vestre viris trice inter orbus reus subsido totus malum resum. The worm quailed and faltered as I raised my voice to a shout. The green valve of the pentacle began to pulse in time. "'Red flame ran across the body of the worm, but it came no closer, "'and I felt none of the heat that I had the night before. "'Servo mihi per vestre viris, trise inter obus reus subsido totus, malum resum!' "'The worm retreated back down the steps. "'Almost as soon as it had begun, it seemed to be over.' "'There was a certain sense of anti-climax "'as I related the events to the Home Secretary "'back in the comfort of his office. "'He passed me a large shot of scotch and a cigar. "'Good show all around,' he said, smiling. "'Crisis averted, and we caught the ballet cleaner, too, "'trying to flee the country. "'I did not quite know how to broach the matter "'I had now been considering, "'so I came straight out with it. I believe that tonight I shall be able to banish the beast completely, I said, as I lit the cigar. The secretary went pale again. Banish it? Whatever for? Sorry, old chap, but that can't be allowed. We have the tradition to consider. Surely the risk outweighs the needs of tradition, I said. He smiled, and I saw the predator in him for the first time. But consider this, Carnacki. What if an enemy ever reaches our doorstep? Do you not see what a weapon we will have as a final solution? And at that I was dismissed. Karnaki sat back in his chair, and we realized, with some confusion, that his tale was over. Arkwright, forthright as ever, was not slow in voicing his displeasure. "'I say, old man, you can't stop there. "'That's no kind of story at all. "'There's no end to it.' Carnacki gave a wistful smile. "'But there is indeed an ending. "'Of sorts,' he said. "'You all saw it on your way here tonight. "'The Home Secretary has used his cleaner's treachery "'to create an anti-Irish flap. "'That, in turn, has allowed him to light bonfires "'all along the Thames,' "'supposedly in celebration of the falling of a new plot "'on the anniversary of Fox Original. "'The fact that none of this is true "'does not seem to bother the secretary one little bit. "'The only gratifying thing to my mind "'is that his actions should ensure "'that the fires are continued to be lit "'on these nights for many years to come, "'and that the old thing that lurks in the water "'will be kept quiet as long as the ritual is maintained.' "'Now, out you go,' he said, and herded us through to the hallway, and then out onto the embankment. As I strolled home, I watched the fires burning with a renewed interest in their history and tradition, and I kept well away from the river.'
2: Just a bit of ink, a small adjustment to the final word, and thereby hangs the tale. Hmm? <laughs> yes. I hope, by the way, that all of you recognize the Home Secretary who featured prominently in tonight's story. Perhaps the overlarge cigar gave him away, or maybe you're a student of English history and know who filled that office, the Home Secretary on November 5, 1910. Hmm? Yes, it is he. (laughs) Most of us know this part of the old rhyme, Remember, remember the 5th of November, The gunpowder treason and plot, I know of no reason why gunpowder treason Should ever be forgot. But how many of us know the last lines Of that childish chant? a penny loaf to feed old Pope, a farthing cheese to choke him, a pint of beer to rinse it down, a faggot of sticks to burn him, burn him in a tub of tar, burn him like a blazing star, burn his body from his head, and we'll say, Old Pope is dead. Now, there's no reason for recalling that, is there? No. Just that it's so wonderfully cruel in the way of small children, yes? Yes. William Miko who wrote Treason and Plot, is a Scot, as mentioned. He now resides in Canada. He's published 15 novels in the genre press and has over 250 short story credits in 13 countries. His work appears in many professional magazines and anthologies, and he has recent short story sales to Nature, Futures, Penumbra, and Daily Science Fiction, among others. His collection, Carnacki: Heaven and Hell, is now available in hardcover, paperback, and in a shorter ebook form from Dark Regions Press. And by the way, tonight's tale, Treason and Plot, first appeared in print 101 years after The Horse of the Invisible. That was in 2011 in the Horror for the Holidays anthology from Miskatonic River Press. And now, a word of credit where credit is due, undoubtedly due. Tonight's tales were told to us by Mr. Robert Newfeld. I'm a frequent visitor to the wonderful and free audiobook site LibriVox, in which classic tales in the public domain are read aloud by, well, anyone with a mic and a passion. As you can imagine, many of these narrations are mm, not up to snuff. Many, however, are quite wonderful and for several months i've been indulging in my yen for works by dickens conrad robert louis stevenson arthur conan doyle and others and was ever delighted when i discovered that a favorite story or book of mine was being narrated by this bob Newfeld fellow finally i contacted bob through librivox and asked if he'd be up for doing one of our shows and he said yes and these are his first recordings for Tales to Terrify, and I guess Ms. Cher has spread the word on him, because his voice will be heard on our sister podcast, Crime City Central, very soon. In the meantime, you can find him on LibriVox.org, reading complete books by Doyle, Conrad, Dickens, any others. He's currently working on A Tale of Two Cities, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and Of All Things... Plato's Republic. When he isn't recording, Bob works in the wide, wonderful world of human resources. Thanks again, Bob. And I look forward to more from you, here, there, and everywhere. Well, we've kept you late tonight, children. I hope these two Karnaki tales have kept your blood pumping and kept the brandy and claret from interfering too much with your faculties. You have a late walk home tonight. Well, that'll be good for you. Clear your head, so to speak. So I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper, and, as Karnaki says, out you go. By the way, there are coyotes reported in the neighborhood tonight. So... Keep a sharp eye, but they are shy, quiet creatures here by the lake. And yes, yes, there may be horses. Carriages ply the streets late at night, and you hear them clopping, clipping through the fog sometimes. You can see them mostly, but sometimes, sometimes there's just the sound, the sound of horses' hooves on solid ground. Well... Take that sound home with you, in your head. Take it into the bed with you. Close your eyes and dream on it, yes? Horses clapping makes for very, very pleasant dreams. Hmm? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.